Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. show where you probably need a glass of wine because the patriarchy is bullshit and women don't get talked about. That's right. This is Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast, where two longtime gal pals drink a lot of wine and talk about a lot of women from history that you probably haven't heard of. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And if you have heard of any of the women that we are discussing, please call the 1-800 number at the bottom of your screen to certify yourself a badass. You may also need an extra glass of wine, depending on how your week went. Or, or you just because it was Valentine's Day and you should treat yourself. Or, you know, your tolerance for my brand of bullshit. <laughs> I mean, that's why I drink. I mean, yes. <laughs> we know that. Yeah, no, There, there's another great uh, true crime and paranormal podcast called And That's Why We Drink. And I'm like, my answer would just be because coping with myself is difficult. <laughs> and then Kelly would be like, because coping with Emily is difficult. <laughs> Emily says too Every many time. puns. <laughs> People love my puns. They're punderful. And I will not apologize. <laughs> I will not apologize. <laughs> On that note, I will talk about the wine we're drinking. Alrighty. I think technically it should have been your wine, but whatever. Fuck it. Uh, you already opened it and yep. poured it, so I feel like this was not a thing that I did to you. No, this was a thing I did to myself. <laughs> yes. Um, you did this to both of us, Kelly. Take responsibility. I mean, it's Kabzov, so I know you'll be happy. Oh, yes. The label is also, it's also gorgeous. The label is so sexy. That's what I want to be one day. Right? Um, so it's, as I said, it's a Kabzov. It's called Tattoo Girl. It's a 2018, and it says... Just as that tattoo artist commemorates a life event or a cherished moment, Tattoo Girl delivers an unforgettable Cabernet Sauvignon with smooth and rich flavors of dark cherry, blackberry, and hints of vanilla and espresso. That's amazing. It's, I mean, here's the thing. You don't need really any kind of description when the label is this fucking gorge. It's, yeah. it's kind of like one of those... Um, black and white illustrations of a almost like a pinup style girl with tattoos all over her and I mean they're the classics the skull the roses the flowers the wings the yada yada but it's just it's hot it's gorgeous I will say I like the touch because it says on the back it says dark cherry blackberry and vanilla and espresso and there's cherries there's um, blackberries and there's espresso beans on the girl as tattoos did you say espresso beans? Espresso. Espresso. <laughs> let it's been me, a day, Emily. Let me espresso oh, uh, how much vanilla. I love this wine. Oh my God, that's awesome. Okay. The I, label truly sells it. Yeah. So this was by William Weaver, and I, I tip my hat to that that vineyard and whoever Sir made this William. label. Yeah. Monsieur Weaver. We it's tip also, our caps to you. 13.8 ABV. So. Oh, fuck. All right. Well, <laughs> cheers. <laughs> Uh, hey, cheers to the tattoo artists in our lives who Heck we've yeah. worked with or have done art on you and who listen to the podcast. Hello. You're awesome. We love you. Cheers. In a completely platonic way. In a, in a completely professional, not creepy way. Although you're the one listening to us. So who's being creepy right <laughs> yeah. now? So who's obsessed with like who? Like you're huh? going out of your way to listen to us talk about a topic that you may or may not have marginal interest in, 
who's really the creep? <laughs> it's me. No, it's still us. <laughs> it's still me. Shit. <laughs> God damn it. It's actually really good. I really like it. Ooh. It's okay. It's gonna sound really weird. It's it's very wet. It is like like a it, lot of reds are dry. Thick, yeah, but it's not like thick and viscous. It's it's very clean. It is. It has a very it's clean neat. finish. Yeah, I like it. It's like that little bit of pain when the needles are burrowing into your skin, and then like the pain stops. But the, the pain, pain does not stop. <laughs> well, like, clearly, someone in this room has not gotten a tattoo. Tell before. me you've never gotten a tattoo without telling me you've never gotten a tattoo. The pain stops. <laughs> I basically, it's like that scene from the forty-year-old virgin when Steve Carell describes touching boobs like bags of sand. Yeah. <laughs> People are like, uh. wait, bags of sand. Oh, no, this is really good. It's really refreshing and like crisp and clean. And it's to say for caps off, it's very light. It feels like a summer caps off. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great end of winter caps off. Yes. Even though we are in full spring right now. Or maybe we just got done with shit. Full spring. No, I know. Everyone's like, oh, this isn't really spring. I'm like, I will take whatever I can get. Okay. Give me that vitamin D. Give me that sweet, sweet vitamin D. Give me that sweet D of the Because here's the thing, variety. like, today, it looked, it, this is what I hate about this portion of winter, because it'll look super nice outside, but it'll still be really fucking cold. Oh, yeah, no, it was. Here, I'm like, it looks so nice, and you go outside, and you're like, but it's not. But the air hurts my bones. It wasn't that bad today. No, but it was still pretty chilled. It was windy. Yeah. Well, and I just got back from Colorado and it was like in the 50s. Like I was hiking around in a tank top and leggings being like. And everyone in Colorado was like, the fuck is wrong with that girl? Well, I'm like, kind of wish I had shorts on right now. That'd be like super comfy. (laughs) I know my mom's in Florida and she was sending me me texts. Because my sister was like, oh, you know, like, how is it in Florida? My mom's like, yeah, it's like in the 70s, low 80s. And my sister's like, that's perfect. I'm like, yeah, it fucking is. Yeah. When I went to Florida, it was in the 50s, which compared to what Minnesota was, was was, really good. But still, like, I go to Florida for it to be warm. spring weather. Yes. Like, come on. No. I mean, that's what happens when a bunch of Minnesotans migrate south. We bring the cold with us. As long as you bring the heat back. I I did not. I absolutely. I I mean, it got warmer, but that's because it was like like, it it wasn't negative (laughs) thirty. So before we get started, I do have a say their name. We haven't had one in a a long time. Um, That's because I'm not doing my homework and like actively seeking them out. But this is a super duper special say their name. One of our best pod gal pals. Rachel of Hashtag History just announced that she's having not one, but two girls. She's expecting twin girls. And you know they're going to be the most feminist little freaks in the world. And they're going to be so so cool. And like... I just, I'm so happy for her. She's such a wonderful person. Hashtag History is an amazing podcast. And also, like, side congratulations to Leah, because, like, Aunt Auntie. Leah. Yeah, 100%. Auntie Leah. Yes, you don't start a podcast with someone if you're not prepared to co-parent their children. Right. That's kind of key. <laughs> yeah, like, pretty sure if Kelly ever had children, they would learn my name first. Probably. Before her husband's. Probably. Just saying. 
I would whisper it into your home. Right. <laughs> but I, she, so she announced it on Instagram with the sonogram and like, I'm, I'm so, so happy excited, for you, yeah. for her. I'm so excited for her. And actually I had let hashtag history kind of lapse on my, my listens. Cause, cause I'm a binger. I am too. I no, need I am too. I, to I do binge. like a week of like one podcast. Yeah. Oh God, I don't know why my phone is freaking out. Oh, it's because someone's messaging the drag king whose Facebook page <sighs> I used to manage, but I, he's doing fine, so I don't need to do that. Um. Anyway, sorry. Rachel, congratulations. We are so happy for you from whining about herstory, from Emily. From Kelly. Cheers. We love you. And we're so excited you're bringing a bunch of more badass babes into the world that, you know... Maybe someone will whine about them on a podcast someday. And don't worry, we'll drink the what you can't. Just for the saying, next few months. just saying, a couple of RBG onesies are coming your way. Mm-hmm. Just saying, but yeah. So, so I told you I kind of let it lapse. So now I'm re-binging hashtag history, and I'm just I'm like falling in love all over again. Where I'm just like I, it's like oh my god. Oh, okay, so like the podcasts I normally listen to, I don't know the people. You know, like a lot of the true crime podcasts I listen to, I don't know the people, but like knowing Rachel and Leah, I'm just like, why did I deny myself any of this? Because I miss them. Like, it's like, it's like not seeing friends in a long time. And then hearing references to us or hearing our like ads play. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's so cool. Oh my God. But yeah, congratulations, Rachel. We are so happy for you. We wish you the healthiest and the chillest of pregnancies. 100%. That anyone could expect, you know, for growing human life inside your body. Right. (laughs) Times two. Like, holy shit. Excited. Congratulations, Rachel. We're so happy for you. Can't wait for all the baby pictures. Oh my God. I need them. I need the baby pictures desperately. But yeah. Watch out for some uh, feminist onesies. I bet she's going to have like 20 pairs of RBG onesie. <laughs> like there's no way she's you not to, getting those from everyone. We need to get everyone. them in not newborn. Yes. No. Just in case. Because, because. Some babies are born not fitting into newborn clothes. Because here's the thing. The Supreme Court is a lifelong position. Exactly. Therefore, they need enough onesies to last them a lifetime. Exactly. Well, yeah. No, they should make an adult RBG it's probably pajamas and, and I, I want it. it yeah. I want it. If anyone has a lead on RBG, like pajama onesie. I might've said RGB because oh. I was doing computer stuff earlier, but yes, it is RBG. Yes. The notorious RBG. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, Love, if anyone, always. if anyone has, uh, has a lead on some RBG PJ onesies, extra in points. adult size, in adult size. Uh, yeah. Extra points if they have pockets, hit us up because the the amount of money I would throw at those is completely irresponsible. Oh, 100%. I cannot like, afford let's it. Let's kickstart this shit. I cannot afford it. All right. Well, Kelly, who are you whining about today? I'm whining second. Oh, so it doesn't matter. God damn it. I was talking for so long and I just wanted to stop. You know, I mean, I can go first. No, we can just throw no. everyone off. You know what? It's fine. Everyone will revolt. And then what are we supposed to do? You know what? Podcasters or podcast listeners crave nothing more than routine. So if we did switch it up, we like people would start screaming. We'd get so many one star reviews. Like I was expecting Emily to go first and you threw off my circadian rhythms. And, and I'm fuck you. And fuck you. I'm not going to send those RBG onesie pajamas with pockets to you now. You bitches. 
asshole. Yeah, no, that would... Us, not them. Yes. Anyway. So, today I am whining about Ramey Davis and the United States Army's... I like that name, Ramey. Six... 1,888th Central Poster Postal Directory Battalion. Ooh, a I, postal? So I have several. It's a long title. I have several relatives in the in the post office. That's like a thing. Mm-hmm. But Postal Battalion. Yes. I'm in love. They weaponize paper cuts so expertly. I could see it. They they stick bombs to things with postage stamps. They just like lick it and stick it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, that's okay. So this is one of those stories where I found the woman and then it turned into more of a story about the whole group. So I kind of flit in and out between stories of different women and different quotes and things. But you know what? It's a fun ride. So just buckle up. Strap in and strap on, bitches. We're doing this. Fuck Yeah. On November 7th, 1941, Japan launched a brutal attack on Pearl Harbor, leaving over 2,400 people dead and officially drawing the United States into the already two-year-long Second World War. Droves of young men enlisted in the United States military, but the demand for soldiers on the battlefield left the military in need of support personnel. While women were barred from serving in battle, they were desperate to do their part for the war effort. Mm -hmm. In 1942, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps was formed to recruit women to fill a variety of roles, including working as switchboard operators, mechanics, stenographers, drivers, and code breakers. Although that last part was soup's top secret. Definitely read code breakers. That shit's amazing. We know now. Yep. The Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, or WACS, I know of course. there were okay, so so the, the Navy like the, wick, the whack the Navy had the where's waves. My, where's my poster? The Navy had the waves, the Air Force had the wasps, and then the Army had the wax. And yeah. I'm like, oh, you got the short end of the acronym stick, didn't yeah. you? <laughs> it's still cool though. The, like, I don't know, I just imagine being going like, that's whack, but it's a good thing. <laughs> Anyway, so the wax, uh, which would later be converted to active duty status in 1942, making them the Women's Army Corps. So we're taking a hmm. taking an A out of the acronym, trying to make it a little a little chiller. So they had a recruitment goal of 25,000 women in the first year. So many women volunteered that they had to increase that limit to 150,000. Wow. One of these women was Ramey Johnson Davis. Ramey was born on October 29th, 1919, as the only girl of six children. She grew up in Virginia with her five brothers, all of whom had already enlisted. Of course. Ramey wanted to do her part and left her job at the U.S. Mint to join the WAX in 1943. We're going to power through it. They're, I'm calling them WAX. I know. Also, like, I don't know, the whole idea, like, you have five sons and they all enlist. Like, yeah. there were, and I just, I just want to point this out. There were a lot of famous cases. I think the Sullivan brothers were one of the most famous, but where, um, like, families lost Everyone. All of their children. To the point where they eventually made, I don't know if it was actually like a law or something, but they made like a rule where like if there was only one surviving member, they would try to bring them home. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was a rule or if it was a practice, but they also, you know, would try not to put family members in the same yep. unit so or they ship. they lose all of them at once. Exactly. That's what Saving Private Ryan's all about. Yes. Is that the last surviving member. And they actually, I think the Sullivan the brothers. brothers are referenced in that. Yes, they are. Yep. Um, so her parents were initially anxious about their sixth child, 
and their last child and their only daughter joining the military, but ultimately supported her. I get that. I would be terrified if my child joined the military. Like, just, just, just the anxiety surrounding that. She recalled, quote, My father was skeptical sometimes about my going off, but Mama said, Child, see the world while you can. Hmm. And I think she recognized that this was a really great opportunity because the opportunities for women, you know, let alone women of color, Tiny. were few and far between. Yep. So by February of 1945, Ramey was aboard the Ile de France, headed to Glasgow, Scotland, as part of the 6,888 6, Central Postal Directory Battalion, or the 6888. Oh, mercifully, I like that. Mercifully, the 6888, which yeah. is how I'm going to refer to them from like now that. on. Because to the, I, like when I wrote this out, I'm like, I, I had to go back and forth in my notes. I was like, are there seriously three eights? Or is it really 6,888? Yes. <laughs> Damn it. No, 6888. So she was one of more than 800 other black women on board. With the oh. U.S. military still being segregated at this time, the entire 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion became the first all-black female World War II unit to serve overseas. The majority of the women were in their late teens and early 20s. Like, a lot of the people who were joining the military at this time were super young. Like, just little babes. And they likely hadn't traveled much. They all had different reasons for joining the WAX. Some wanted adventure or economic opportunity. Others were compelled by patriarch duty or a desire to support the men in their lives that were already serving. But most, it was a complex combination. There were a lot of benefits and there were a lot of opportunities for women joining the military at this time. The 6888 uh, were tasked with tackling the massive backlog of mail that the U.S. military was dealing with. There were at least two years of undelivered mail and packages that hadn't been delivered to soldiers. So, like, the, the war had been going on for, well, actually, the U.S. joined in 1941. This mm -hmm. is about 1945. Okay, so it wasn't, like, Four the entirety. for the U.S. Yeah. Um, but still, like... A ridiculous amount of time uh, and this was devastating for morale and I I don't want to I don't want to say like I I don't want to make comparisons between serving on the front lines and like making sure the mail gets delivered but it's very important to note that soldiers not getting their mail not getting their letters from their partners at home from their moms their sisters their friends care packages it was devastating for morale and like my ex he would he would kind of go stir crazy when he wasn't getting letters or being able to communicate with his family back home when he was stationed overseas like it really is hugely important and at this point in the war morale is really struggling right. like kind of the initial fervor of the like let's get them boys has died down everyone is just really exhausted so that's why the six triple eights motto was no mail no morale but before even getting to Glasgow, Romay experienced the dangers of war. While en route, the ship suddenly lurched to the side, causing barrels and furniture to roll around. Understandably startled, some of the women screamed out. And Romay scolded them, saying, You can't get off the ship. You have to train yourself not to be so frightened that you can't enjoy. <laughs> and I kind of like, like, that reminds me of my dad's approach to problems. It's like, okay. Well, you can't get off the ship or like we can't change what's happened. So let's deal with it. And it's not like you can get off the ship. You right. might like, well, you're already here. 
put your head between your legs and kiss your butt goodbye. So they would later learn that the lurch had been caused by the boat making a sharp turn to dodge an attack from a German U-boat. So this wasn't just like ocean shenanigans. This was genuinely dodging an attack from an enemy vessel. She would later comment about the U-boat encounter, quote, I asked the girls, I said, now what's the point of being afraid right now? You, you can't do one earthly thing but pray. I guess I was the brave one. Like, that's a very pragmatic and reasonable way to approach that situation because it's like there is nothing you can do except let go. Right. Like- <laughs> and that's, that can actually be a very peaceful place. So when they weren't dodging U-boats, the women women were combating seasickness, but they made it to Scotland. Like, totally valid. Right. And then uh, they went to England where they set up in King Edward's school building. Nice. Once in England, the work began. Ooh. All U.S. service members in Europe had unique file cards that said where they were at any given time. However, due to their swift movements, mail had fallen far behind and and it, it just wasn't getting to people. Now, I was going to look more into, like, how the soldiers having these file cards and then, like, like okay, do you check in when you get to a new place and, like, someone... Right, like, how does that work? I, I'm like, I don't understand how communication happened before technology. Like, even letters, like, reliable communication before technology and even with technology blows my mind. So I didn't get too into it because that's not the point. It's magic. It was also a bureaucratic nightmare because many of the servicemen had the same names or super similar names. According to an article by Smithsonian uh, from Smithsonian Magazine by Michael A. McCoy that I used heavily in this uh, research. So props to Mr. McCoy about the 6888 Battalion. There were 7,500 Robert Smiths alone. And then you have the Rob Smiths, Robbie Smiths, Bobby Smiths, Bob Smith. Yeah. Ro-Ro. I don't know. Yeah, little (laughs) Ro-Ro. Robert. Like, I don't fucking know. So their job was to sort through years worth of mail and make sure it got to the service members. They got warmed up, you know, by clearing out six airplane hangars filled with mail. The hangers are literally like filled to the brim with mail. Not only did they have to sort through massive piles of mail, but the mail was also infested with rodents, including like big ass rats who had been eating away at the baked goods and treats that family members sent, especially like around Christmas time. So there were a lot of Christmas cookies that were just like getting munched on by rats, which is so sad. Like you're, you're imagining a mother back on the home front. She bakes her son's favorite cookies and sends them overseas. And then a rat fucking eats them. That's devastating. I mean, they're, Depending, I mean, yeah, because most probably of the planes at that time were being used for the war effort. So especially if these this mail is getting put on a ship. Yeah. Well, and then too, like because the mail is so backlogged, like I don't know, it, it just I I just kept thinking about all the all the soldiers who would have gotten their mail, but then by the time it caught up, they like they didn't survive or something, and that really fucked me up. Like, oh my god, your mom sent you this, your sister sent you this. And you never got to see it, even though you should have. So, yeah, that just, that bummed me out. So, uh, rats, baked goods, treats. Okay, the hangers were dark as the windows had been blacked out to deter against air raids. So it was just like kind of a really miserable working environment. 
And they didn't just sort the mail, but they had to go through it and censor any information that could be compromising. So this also included included letters home. Right. It's both ways. Yes. Or like, say, a family member references something in the newspaper and it's like, oh, we didn't report that right because we're trying to like espionage. I don't know. And actually, apparently at first, everyone was like, oh, I definitely want to be like reading all these letters. But they were super long and some of them are going to be super sad. I'm sure a lot of them were sad, but most of them were pretty. I mean, they're just very mundane because these are details that aren't important to you unless you know the person. You know? Right. Well, and a lot of times it was like it would be like basically a retelling of what's going on at home. Like, so here was mom's life mm-hmm. for the last month. Here's your sister is like, yeah, which is going to be super fucking boring. Yeah. So packages that had been damaged and scattered were reassembled by a special team that worked to match up packaging materials and dates so that whatever was left could actually See, be sent. That I would find interesting. That would like I, puzzling shit. I together. would find that interesting, but it would also be like how frustrating would that be? And how sad. I know. Can you imagine like a you know a gift that just got like ripped to pieces? And just, you're just like, well, uh, this is what you get. Well, and these are just like these letters and gifts and things. They're just very personal artifacts from uh from a conflict that sometimes gets I, i'm not saying we gloss over right. world war ii but we got you know the human There's element is it. not always evident and it's like it's just very personal so the working conditions were less than ideal the school building was old and the showers were outside in the courtyard so the women had to brave the february chill to shower which we were just bitching about the weather if i had to walk outside in a towel shower and then walk back outside in a towel to get back inside i would kill someone i would straight up burn everything to the ground that's a nightmare there were no days off romay and the other women worked seven days a week in three eight hour shifts and there was never a moment when someone wasn't working so they just cycled through so they're working 24 7 in these shifts to allow them to like continue functioning as a human being the work was long, hard, and frustrating, but the six triple eight took comfort in each other. One woman recalled, quote, we as black women were used to being together as family. And I, I love that. Like the com- there, there's a sense of camaraderie in the military, but also they have this extra love. It's like, hey, as black women, like we're used to being our right. own community. The six triple eight was led by Charity Adams Early or Charity Edna Adams now. She there were like four different names that I found. So I'm just going to call her Charity. Uh, She was from South Carolina. Charity had been recruited by a dean at Wilberforce University. The military had relationships with many universities, working with administrators to recruit women. Even before the U.S. entered World War II, they're like, "Mm, shit's getting stirred. We best be on the ready. And this is actually where a lot of the code breakers came from. Like professors would like put letters in these girls like university mailboxes and be like hey you should totally like just come to this like secret club or like you should just take this test don't don't ask me questions like it was all very secret and very kind of sus but it was to evaluate these these women as potential code breakers well charity had graduated from the university with a triple major in math physics and latin Sorry, I just threw up a little. And a minor in history to keep it light. Like triple yeah, majoring in math, physics, and Latin. That's I, insane. Again, I would burn this place to the ground. I mean, at least like the Latin kind of ties in 
to the physics and stuff. Does but it? It would, it would more go along with like biology almost. I was going to yeah. say like I thought it was going to be some kind of, you know, science or okay, earth science, <laughs> not physics. Anyway, but she was a history minor, so she's our gal. So Charity was no stranger to racism in the military. While she was traveling home on a train for leave, she was stopped from entering the dining car by the steward who told her that only people in uniform could enter. Now you're thinking, well, this is like a military respect thing, you know, whatever. Um, But it's important to note that she was literally wearing her military uniform. (laughs) So this was was definitely like a combination racist, sexist thing. Where it's like only uniform personnel can enter. And she's like, I'm literally in uniform. Like, I'm sorry. Do you think I'm just wearing this for funsies? Do you think I just like stole this and was like, let's try to get in here. So before Charity even had the chance to point out the obvious, like I I can only imagine she like made one of those faces where she's like, what? Like, like, wait, I I must be the idiot. I must be hearing this wrong because you are making zero sense. But before she had a chance to really have much of a reaction, a man spoke up. A white second lieutenant with a thick southern accent called out saying, well, what in the hell do you think that is she has on? I'm just doing transatlantic. I don't care. I love it. What in the world are we fighting this damned war for? She's given her service to and can eat anywhere I can. And by Jesus, I'm going to eat with her in this diner. Ooh. What a fucking gentleman. Thank you. That is how you take the Lord's name. Right. (laughs) By Jesus, I'm going to eat with her. The steward let her by and the second lieutenant and her shared a meal. Aww. Which like, way to be an ally. Right. Like way to be like, no, she's just a member of the military, just like I am. And that's a, that's a great, that's a great way also to use your privilege for good, you know, because the steward isn't going to tell this, you know, white lieutenant, no. He's just a train bitch. And I'm not calling him that because stewards aren't train are, trains are bitches, but he is a bitch on a train. Sick of these motherfucking bitches on this motherfucking train. So despite the challenges, Charity proved to be a, like an incredible soldier. She was promoted to the rank of major, but this came with a warning from her white colonel who told her, don't let being an officer go to your head. You are still colored, and I want you to remember Wait, he that. Said that he's saying oh, this to her. It. She just got promoted to major, and this is what he's telling her: Don't let get, being an officer go to your head. You are still colored, and I want you to remember that. You. This is when I would punch him in the face. You people have to stay in your place. You people have to stay in your place. Why your folks might have been slaves to my people right in South Carolina. Oh my fucking god! I would. I would punch him. In the and this wasn't even the whole, this wasn't all he said. This tirade would go on for 45 minutes of him just being like, hey, I know you're a major now, but you're still lesser than me right. because you're you're a black woman. Like normally if I get promoted, I'm given like a congrats, not a stay in your place because you're lesser. Like, can you fucking imagine? And even though she's making these advances, the people she's working with and under are literally telling her stay in your place. This, this actually doesn't mean anything because I still own you. Like it's, oh my God. It's so gross. It's really disgusting. 
So in December of 1944, Major Charity Adams was assigned to lead the first all-black wax unit to ever serve overseas, the 6888, y'all. Fuck yeah. Apparently, when she was asked if she'd be willing to go overseas, she thought it was a joke because no, like, black women were, had been sent overseas. Right, she's probably like, <laughs> are you fucking with me? Yeah. Like... So Major Charity continued to successfully lead the battalion, but was still subjected to racism from higher ups. Of course. So in March, a white general visited the unit to check in, and he demanded to see every single member of the 6888, but Charity informed him that that wasn't possible as only a third were available for formation. The rest were working, sleeping, showering, or eating. Like, remember, right. they're like- working in shifts. 24 7 like a standard fucking unit exactly exactly it's like really we're going to shut down at we're going to shut down this 24 7 job that we have been assigned to do by the u.s military so, so you, you can, can look everyone. at us yeah. like that, Fuck that. yeah and, and she wasn't even like being disrespectful she's like that's just literally not possible right like i can assemble who i have yeah but that's all you're getting so the general is pissed because how dare a black woman, like, not just scramble everyone and bend over backwards for him. Uh, and threatened to send a white first lieutenant to take over operations of the battalion. Like, he specifically was like, I'm going to send a white guy to come and take over because you clearly can't handle this. And Charity responded, over my dead body, sir. Sir. That's just like such a military. You gotta say, and sir. I really hope she like. I know. I hope she was asshole. like and like had this shit eating grin like over my dead body. <laughs> well, the general tried to have Charity court martialed because he was pissed and he was throwing the world's biggest hissy fit. As um, white men do often, but the officers of the six triple eight filed their own charges against the general, arguing that he had violated an order that prohibited racially charged language. Because yeah. remember, he had threatened to send a white officer to show her how to run a battalion. Like he was li- That's definitely racially motivated. He was specifically calling her out like you're black and you can't handle this. So this caused the general to drop his charges and then the 688 dropped theirs. And actually there was so there was a policy uh, that prohibited racially charged language in the U.S. military at this time because they were trying to instill confidence in European militaries who were worried that the racism of the U.S., like everyone's just going to start fighting with each other. Like, oh my God, they cannot get along. How valuable of allies are they going to be? And like, not to say they didn't want the U.S. to like get involved and help, but there was that concern to the point where they had to make a policy to show European countries like, no, no, no. we put some rules into place. We're all going to play nice. I'm like, that's that's sad like the rest of the world is literally like "Mm, they can't get their poop in a group (laughs) like come on so the women of the 6888 were independent they fixed their own meals appliances vehicles and did each other's hair and more fuck yeah they were also trained in jujitsu nice because they were not permitted to carry weapons so they would just straight up throw a bitch down if they had to (laughs) which i think is the most amazing thing so we've talked about the lack of hair care and beauty products for black women in the past and also like the importance of that. And like when you covered uh, Madam CJ Walker. So right. if you haven't listened to that episode like that, that she's one of my favorite women you've covered because I really thought about not only beauty and hair care and personal care in a different way, but also beauty, hair care and personal care for black women, how important that was. I was like, oh, my God, I never really thought about it that way. So the. uh 
sorry, the military was lacking in this, you know, even, you know, um, white women also had to deal with, you know, some like they were dying their hair with peroxide and weird things like that. But there, there just were not supplies for black women and, you know, black hair. So the six AAA officers were able to get straightening combs, Marcel irons and other personal care supplies. And the women actually built their own salon. And this didn't only serve the women of the 6888, but black nurses stationed nearby would go to the salon to have their hair done. And like, I, we've all gone a really long time without getting our hair hair dealt with, like in the pandemic. But I don't know about you, my hair is pretty low maintenance. But there are challenges to having, you know, ethnic hair that are different and like just being able to have that resource and that sense of community and like, Oh, Hey, we're all help. We're all here for each other. We're all helping each other. This is our, this is like a safe space for all of us. I just think that's really wonderful. So the six triple eight would move across Europe, uh, including going to Paris. They would like move throughout France. And this was a new world to the women, European restaurants, dance halls, and other spaces were not segregated. Non-black locals would invite the women to eat with their families, and they were included in Parisian parades. There was like a... Dude, I, I, the French were so fucking nice. The, the second I read that they went to Paris, I was like, oh, they're going to be very well taken care of. Because how many how many women of color have we covered that like... They go to France. They go to France. And Paris France in particular. Loves them. Yeah. Like it's because the, the racism, I'm not going to say it was didn't exist or doesn't exist, it was a lot more muted, especially compared to the United States at this time. But I just like, I think that's so nice. And then they're, they're experiencing, you know, this like metropolitan city and all this other stuff. Like this was a really, really a, a whole new world for a lot of these women. So, uh, oh yeah, this was in stark contrast to the still deeply segregated and racist United States. In early 1946, the 6888 finished their work clearing the backlogs of mail in Paris, breaking all existing mail delivery records. Wow. Charity Adams was promoted to lieutenant colonel, which was the highest rank a woman in the U.S. military could achieve at the time, other than being a wax director. Like, you had to be running the wax, so she's like top of the top. Jesus. Oh, but don't let it go to your head. God, I'm I'm still, I was mad writing that. So Romay Johnson returned to the U.S. Uh, and was honorably discharged, hoping to study medicine and become a doctor. She was likely bolstered by her experiences in the army and her sense of, equ- and the sense of equality that she felt in Europe. However, that was not the reality that met her and the other uh, black women back at home. Few universities accepted black medical students, and she was unable to pursue medicine. She instead studied fashion design at New York's uh, Trapagan School of Fashion using funds from the GI Bill, which I thought was great because there were, like, historically there have been benefits from the, like, GI Bill that have been limited. Right. Or, like, oh, you're, you're a black service member. You don't qualify for that because racism. Uh, and she worked on making clothing. And while in New York, she met and married her husband, Jerry Davis. So that's where the Davis comes from. Yeah. 
While other service members were welcome home with open arms, parties and parades, veterans of color were received more coldly. They were just expected to slide back into the status quo of the U.S., which, as I mentioned, was deeply segregated. Jim Crow was still reigning supreme. And actually, there were a lot of civil rights activities going on during World War II. And there were there were slogans like, I have to fight Hitler over there and Jim Crow here. Like, right. I'm fighting on two fronts and like, that sucks. Bullshit. Yeah. Um, as one of the 6888 members, Corporal Lena Duracott Bell King said, quote, we never heard anything more about it. All of that was behind us. It's like you did your job. Now go. That's it. Yeah. That's so gross. And I, and I like, I'm not saying everyone like needs or gets a parade, but it was a stark contrast and how service members of color were treated compared to white service members. So Ramey would recall, quote, at the time, black, black people weren't joyous, joyously invited to do anything. So while some of the 6888 women would go on to have military careers, the unit itself was disbanded in February of 1946. During service, the unit was awarded the European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal, the Good Conduct Medal, and the World War II Victory Medal. So good for them. Black veterans would continue to fight for their rights uh, leading up to and beyond the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s. And regardless of how the country they had served felt, the women of the 6888 were empowered. Romay would go on to travel extensively and earn her black belt in Taekwondo in her 70s. This is a girl, this is a gal who will not quit. Right. Uh, as she put it, quote, home is very good, but a lot of good is awakened in you when you are challenged. And there there was a quote I didn't include, but she was talking about she went to Africa twice and she's like, yeah, I went on my own and got lost. Um, and I probably shouldn't have done that, but it turned out fine. <laughs> Just like God. So the role of women in World War II is getting more and more attention and becoming better understood, including the work of the 6888. The 6888 has received a variety of honors in recent years, including being honored on February 25th, uh, 2009, at the Women in Military Service for America Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery, which was attended by three former members. On March 15th, 2016, the battalion was inducted into the U.S. Army's Women's Foundation Hall of Fame. On November 30th, I put 2028. That is super not correct. It is not even 2028 now, uh, maybe 2018. <laughs> I think that's what I meant. A monument to the women of the battalion was de- dedicated at Fort Leavenworth. And then on February 12th, which the anniversary was just a few days ago, 2021, bipartisan legislation was introduced to award the Congressional Gold Medal to members of the 6888. It, w- it well passed. Deserved. Yeah, right? Like, about time. It passed and was signed on March 14, 2022 by President Biden. Ramey Johnson Davis, along with five other surviving 6888 members, Crescencia Garcia, Fanny McClendon, Gladys E. Blount, Lena King, and Anna Mae Robertson were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. I think they're the only surviving members now. Remember, this was over 800 women. Right. But it was also a long time ago. I know, but it's, it's like... It's still ugh, heartbreaking, I wish, yeah. No, I just, I'm like, I wish that they could have gotten the props that they deserved at the time. So uh, after after the award ceremony, 
Romay was asked why she had served, and she said, it's my country too. Which really blows my mind with the way that black people were being treated at the time to be like, yeah, I still want to fight for this country. It, it just, it's really touching. So Ramey is the oldest surviving member of the 6888 and just celebrated her 103rd birthday on October 29th, 2022. So October 29th of this year, she's going to be 104 and by God, she's making it. I'm putting it out there. She's fucking making it. She's going to make it to 104. We're going to do a social media post about it's it. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So the 6 Eights recognition is only growing with a movie by Tyler Perry in the works uh, and a 6 Eight legacy tour and more. But, oh, that's all I had. I thought I ended on like a cool but, quote. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. In the words of Romay Johnson Davis, it's my country too. That just, that yeah. that really that broke my heart. Right, like, like come on, yeah. But just I mean, you know, women, women of color, all these people really wanted to do their part for the war effort, and the benefits were not equal. The treatment was not equal, and I mean, I mean, the outcomes were not equal. No, like, not but at all. but the fact that they all still wanted, like, hey this is kind of a raw deal now, but I want to fight to make it better. And I want to fight for this country to survive and I'm going to do it. It just, it's really wonderful. So that is the story of Romay Davis and the United States Army's 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion or No Mail, No Morale. I like that. I like it. I never thought like mail sorting could be so fascinating. Right. Thank you for bringing that to us, Emily. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was a lot of fun. And that honestly, you know, some of these support roles are things I've never really thought of. You know, you just like assume it happens. But the work it took to sort to travel across multiple countries to sort years worth of mail (laughs) in both directions, too. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, what a logistical nightmare. But yeah. Hey, guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank you goodness. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus you can exchange unlimited messages and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash herstory. So Kelly, Emily, who are you whining about? Yes, it's actually now, my now turn now. Now I can now. actually ask you these questions. Um, and it's I'm, appropriate. Thank you. 
I am going to whine about Augusta Savage. Ooh, really quick because it just, uh, I just remembered it. I was watching Jeopardy today while I was at the gym mm-hmm. and one of the categories was U.S. women. <laughs> and you're like, I got this. I felt very smart because as someone who doesn't know like any Jeopardy answers, they had, they had footage of Althea Gibson who I, who I covered yep. way back. Um, and she was the first black woman to win like the grand slam. And she was an incredible tennis player, but they were showing footage. And before they even asked the question, I was like, oh, who is Althea Gibson? I know who Althea Gibson is. <laughs> Fortunately, the person got it correct. So I didn't have to like scream at be thing. mad yeah. at them. Um, although I would have felt pretty hoity toity for being like, well, I knew who that was. Right. Like, like come like, on, Jeopardy person. Oh my God. Go yeah, home, Matt. Good. Go home, Madison. You're drunk. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that made me really happy because we covered her. It's Black History Month. It was cool to see her get some more, you know, mainstream public love. And yeah, no. So I wanted to share That's that great. with you because I was, like I was running moment. on the treadmill and I'm like, I know her. <laughs> I love when I have those like real world moments where like my random ass knowledge comes in handy. Right. I feel like such a smarty. Okay, sorry to interrupt. This is how my brain works. I love you. Go on. Okay, Augusta Savage. Which I love the name Augusta. I love the name Savage. I would love. I would love my last name to be Savage. Just putting that out there in the universe. Emily Savage, and that's how you have to say it. Like people are like Miss Savage. Um, actually, it's pronounced Savage. Everyone just puts notes on your yeah. <laughs> Say like asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Savage. No, not that kind of asshole. Yeah. <laughs> not no no no. Not a not a, you know, pretentious asshole, but like a 90s bitch girl asshole. Savage. Savage. Valley girl. I'm gonna cyberbully you. <laughs> Sorry, what? It's not. Okay. Tell me more about Miss Savage. All right. So Augusta was originally born Augusta Christine Fells in Green Cove Springs, Florida, which just sounds lovely. Green Cove Springs. Okay, here's the thing. There's so many many places in Florida that sound like the name is really pretty and then you get there and it's like, like, this is a shithole. This is a lie. You (laughs) lied to my face, Florida. 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 Um, In 1892. So 1892. Ooh. 1892. Yeah, that's when Lizzie Borden murdered her parents. Allegedly. 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 Now want her to sue me from the grave. Right? She was acquitted, but like... Mm. Augusta was the seventh of 14 children to Edward and Cornelia. That's another name I really like. I love that name. Um, Augusta began very early making small figures out of the natural red clay that was found in the area that she lived, and she'd make, like, small animals for her siblings and stuff like that. Um, But her father, who was um, a Methodist minister, which really doesn't have anything to do with what he did, kind of. We'll get into it. Anyways, he strongly opposed his daughter's early interest in art and sculpture, and um, Augusta actually recalled, quote, my father licked me four or five times a week and almost whipped all the art out of me, end quote. Oh, my God. Oh, I've heard of this person. Yeah. That that quote. Yep. <laughs> I've seen it. I've, I've, I've thought about covering her. Also, I forgot that licked meant beat. So for yep. a second, I was like. Particularly whipping. Ew. 
I'm like, ew, that's just gross. No, no, it's it's yeah. terrible. Um, this was because he believed her sculpt- sculpting and sculpture was a sinful practice due to his interpretation of the Bible section about graven images. Even oh. though she wasn't making like satanic things she was making animals no that that is like a a super orthodox thing especially in christianity like god creates like 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 to try to create something living is like to be god right because no no no. he made the birds you don't even get to make a facsimile of birds because you're not god it's like um the the state capital right has a lot of, uh, of Minnesota has a lot of mistakes in the patterns painted around the ceiling because they purposely left out sequences because to try to be perfect is to try to be like God and therefore you're fucking asking for it. So that, that is like a super orthodox thing. I don't think it's very popular Generally though, because technically graven image means a representation of God or an object of worship. Technically. So so if he's re, if that's what he's basing it off of. But God made the birds and the animals, right. therefore. I'm just saying, specifically, if he's basing it off of graven images, that's technically not what a graven image is. Okay, for okay, I, I know we're kind of debating this, but n- three but ways yeah. to Sunday, he's a piece of yeah, shit. He's, he's, he's an asshole. Fuck him. Um, she would uh, stick it to him and persevere, anyways. Damn um, right. And continue doing art, and would actually, when she got to high school, um, be recognized um for her talent and her teachers would allow her to teach like clay modeling like the unit on clay modeling because she was that good you know what i call sticking it to your abusive dad by pursuing your love of art you badass savage savage fucking savage i love her her teacher that like fostered this art love or like actually (laughs) let it blossom be, like this would be um, begin this lifelong commitment not only to creating art for Augusta but also to in wanting to teach. Aww. So it's like aww. I love it. I love it because she has this great teacher who's helping her hone her talent when she's come from a very unsupportive environment. She's like, I want to do this for other people. Right. That's Augusta. Your right. sav- Your kindness is savage, and I love it. Yep. So in 1907, at the age of 15. Augusta would get married. Oh, did you say 15? 15. One five. Oh, oh. She would marry a man named John T. Moore, and they would have two daughters, or they would have a daughter. The two would have a daughter. Okay. Uh, named Irene Connie Moore. I do love the name Irene. Who was born the following year. Unfortunately, John would die, like, shortly after their daughter was born, leaving her a widowed mother single yeah. mother yeah so now she's a sick so she went from being a 15 year old to being a 16 year old widowed mother yeah. of a baby right that is horrifying right she would alternate she would alternate between like kind of living with her family and just trying to make her own ends meet until in 1915 um when her family moved to west palm beach and she would move with them um, she would meet and marry James Savage. Yeah, just for his last name. Yeah, one hundred percent. I would. I there are a lot of people I would just marry. For their last they name. they would actually only be married for five years, have no kids, and she would keep the last name for the rest of her life. Damn right she did. Right. <laughs> um, she would continue to model clay all of this time, and in nineteen nineteen, she would actually be granted a booth at the Palm Beach County Fair. 
uh, where she would win a $25 prize and a ribbon for the most original exhibit for her clay sculptures. Nice. Following this success, she sought um, commissions for from people in Jacksonville, Florida this time because she moved again, um, where she would do art on and off, and then she would depart for New York City a few years later because moving why on not? up, moving on up she would the arri- East Coast. Right? She would arrive in New York with $4.60 to her name and a letter from the county fair to... Um, a sculptor named Salone Borglum to like be her teacher. So basically she arrives with $4 and 60 cents in a letter. That's like, Hey, this girl's really good at art. You should teach her. Okay. So she, she rolls up to New York <laughs> with a few bucks in her pocket and a recommendation yep. letter. <laughs> 100%. Okay. You know, like the, the, the immigrant story of like, Oh, they came to the United States with a quarter in their pocket. And now they're millionaires. This is the story we need <laughs> four bucks and a letter of recommendation. <laughs> Like everyone out of college. Yeah. Um, oh my God. No, recommendation layers, I think, used to be super big. I think they're a bigger deal if you go to like a really hoity toity school. Probably. But I remember I had to go get recommendation letters and I'm like, I'm just trying to survive here. Well, I don't I know anyone. When I applied for my master's, that's another thing too, is if you're going into like n- higher, higher ed. education, then you need recommendation letters. And yeah. I'm like, fuck, I didn't stay in touch with like. It's like eight years later. I'm not in touch with any of my teachers. Like, fuck. Yeah. The closest relationship I have to any of my former educators is I'm Facebook friends with my college advisor. Nice. Nice. But we don't talk. Like, I don't think she knows who I am. (laughs) Right. So when she went and um, met the sculptor salon, or sorry, Sloan. No, it is salon. Oh. It is. He had to be an artist. Yeah. Well, and I'm trying to like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out if his name is Salon Borglum or if like it was a salon named it was called, Borglum. Okay. I don't know. Let's just call him Borg. Yeah, we'll call him Borg. What's so, up, Borg? I think it's a person though. Because when, when Borg discovered that she couldn't afford tuition at the School of American Sculpture, he encouraged her to apply to Cooper Union School, which was a scholarship based art school in New York instead. She would apply. She would get admitted because she's actually pretty decent. The cool thing about it was she was selected before 142 other people, almost all men that were on the waiting list to get into school first. Damn. Yeah. She's that good. Well, and I like to see it. It's like, hey, this is actually based on merit. Right. Um, And her talent and ability once she got in impressed the advisory council so much that they awarded her an additional like grant for room and board once she once they found out she had like lost her job she was an apartment caretaker which didn't give her much money but gave her a place to live and so when she lost that and she didn't have a place to live they were like no you're good enough we want to keep you we'll pay for your room and board wow isn't that so nice when educational institutions acknowledge that life is hard and like sometimes bettering yourself through education is now always tenable due to life situations and they're like hey not only do we acknowledge that but let's help you out Right. Love to see it. She would, so she was going for a four-year degree, which she would complete in three years, and she would be studying under sculpt, uh, sculptor George Brewster. So he was like her mentor. Or was it the salon? <laughs> George, George Brewster. <laughs> no, it was actually George Brewster. Cool. Um, after completing her studies, she would work at Manhattan Steam Laundries. 
because of course so to support steamy. herself and her daughter well and i guess technically her husband at this Shit, time i totally that forgot she left ha- yes i totally forgot she still has a kid yeah, this whole time we don't talk like she doesn't get mentioned a whole ton i know but like just just everything she's doing imagine like bt dub she has a kid exactly so I'll just throw that in automatically <laughs> harder like like just every other sentence right and there's also a there's a kid. <laughs> um, and her life got a little bit harder because now um, in this same year that she was working for the Manhattan Steam Laundries, her father got paralyzed by a stroke and her family's home was destroyed by a hurricane. So her parents and whatever kids were still left in the home moved to New York to live with her. Oh, my And so she's supporting God. like most of her family now. Okay. You, you in, know, in a small like apartment she's not in a house she's in an apartment you know like the sad country song where the guy loses his truck his dog and his girl that's what's going on i lost my dad who had very still alive he's He's paralyzed by a stroke and they lost their house to a hurricane but still like that is the ultimate sad country song it's like my abusive father who i have very complex feelings towards is paralyzed and then my family lost their home to a what a fire you said hurricane hurricane and now they're all coming to live with me and now they're all coming to live with me (laughs) exactly so they're living in this small apartment but during this time she did obtain her first commission in new york from the New York Public Library Aww. for a bust of W.E.B. Du Bois. So, like, this is this is big money. And this is and the, her I mean, wheelhouse. Yeah. Well, and W.E.B. Du Bois, like, that's a huge name. Yes. Well, and, I mean, he and was... And W.E.B. Du Bois is still alive at this point. So oh, she's shit. She's sculpting a lot. Like, I don't know if she, like, had him sit for her, but, like, the person she is sculpting will probably see the sculpture yeah. she is making that would be that would be stressful also what a what a cool thing because he's you know this prominent you know member of the civil rights movement and all that and yep. like oh my god it's, that comes up yeah so her statue was so good it obviously brought in more condi- commissions but also a key figure in the NAACP William Pickens senior praised her depiction of african-american like of doing an african-american immensely because it was more humane and it was neutral and it was like real versus how most other artists at the time were depicting african-americans these like caricatures these super racist caricatures like yeah the like you you go into most antique stores if you if you look hard enough you can dig up a racist postcard it's so and it's really it's really hard to look at. Um, so yeah, like she was going against most of the stereotypes at the time, probably because that's her, like that's her race, and so yeah. of course she's going to depict it in a real life way. Anyways, she would go on to apply for a summer art program at the Fontainebleau School of Fine Arts in mm. France. She was accepted. Ooh, we're going back to France. No, we're not. Damn it. <laughs> because upon finding out that she was black, the American Selection Committee for the school rescinded her application, fearing that the fellow white students they were sending would be uncomfortable working alongside a black woman. Fuck. Like, if she had actually made it to France, it would have been fucking fine. But no, the American Selection Committee were like, hmm. People are going to be uncomfortable. Are you fuck? Okay, this is what they mean when they talk about white fragility. And I'm going to tell you right now, this has not gone away. No. This kind of shit still happens. And this is still an element in our current, like, 
our current racism landscape. Also, I would be offended personally if God, I was one yeah. of those white students. I'm like, I'm sorry, you you're choosing for <laughs> like, me. No, I'm fine with it. <laughs> you're deciding for me that I'm incapable of working next to another artist who is black. Fuck you. How right. dare you? Right. Augusta was obviously like super fucking upset and probably pissed off and that she would go to question the committee. And this would begin the first of many public fights for equal lives that or equal rights that Augusta would have in her life. And she would actually even write to the New York world, like being like, this is bullshit. Um, though, and she would appeal all the way to the French government to reinstate her reward, but they would kind of be like, eh, like we don't want to ruin our relationship exactly. with the U S and this so program. it wouldn't really have any effect. And, she wouldn't be able to study at the school, which is bullshit. Um, this would get press coverage on both sides of the Atlantic, so both here in the United States and in France. Um, and eventually, the sole supportive committee member, the American committee member, who was named Herman Atkins McNeil, who sh- who at the time shared a studio with an African-American artist named oh Henry Osawa Tanner, which is probably why he's like, nah, it's fine. Like, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Um, he would reach out to her and be like, Hey, you can come study with me. Like the other people on this committee were being assholes and you can't study in France, but you can come study with me. Oh, so she, I love that. She would go work with him and would cite him as one of her many teachers. Like, like again, this is allyship. This is like, Hey, the system is being bullshit. Fuck the system. We're doing this. Right. So later that year, so 1923 still Augusta would marry her third husband, (laughs) Get him, girl. Yeah, we're on number three. I was like, wait, what number are we on? <laughs> number three, Robert Lincoln Poston, or Poston, depending on how you want to read it, who was a fellow artist. Um, sadly, he would die a year later of pneumonia aboard a ship while returning from Liberia as part of, as part of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League delegation that he had gone to Liberia. So he was coming home, had pneumonia, and died. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Uh, and like, she doesn't have good luck with husbands. Well, here's the other thing. Her, like... Oh, also, still has a child. Yes, also still has a child. Irene is still around. <laughs> also, is still a single mother. Um, but I mean, just, she wasn't for like a year, but I guess he was off traveling to Liberia. But I also like, you know, I, I think it can be really easy to poke fun like, mm, this is her third husband. Yeah, she married her first when she was literally a child. Right, and so, he died. And he so, died. Like, it wasn't like... He was like he could have been an abusive asshole. I don't know. There wasn't a lot of record on it. Yeah. Like, and so he died, like left her alone, which is arguably gonna be significantly harder in the early nineteen hundreds mm-hmm. to be a single to be a single woman with a child, let alone a single black woman with a child. Yeah. And then her second husband, who knows what happened, but they got yeah. divorced. And then this one died again. But like she she's so young and to be experiencing all this like tragedy, it just, yeah, no, I, I feel for her. That sucks. Yeah, she would be 28, I think, at this point. Oh my God. Ish. Maybe 31. 28 to 31, I'd have to do yeah. the math. But, anyways. That's sad, though. Yep. So, still sad. Um, so, she would continue just kind of rocking it. And then in two years, she would win a scholarship. With the help of W.E.B. Du Bois, who she had done a sculpture for. He's probably like, hey, you do this really great sculpture. I'll help you. I'll yeah. write you a letter of recommendation. Well, he was he was very big about, People, you know, like the, the promotion and the improvement and all that stuff. So so this this um, scholarship was to the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Rome. 
However, it's always is like side note to my don't, stories. Don't don't do these bots. I hate um, them. I didn't. It was a however. It, I hate those too. Um, this time it wasn't people that got in the way, but finances. The scholarship would only cover tuition, and she was not able to raise the money to travel or to live in Rome. Oh. So she was unable to attend, which is very very sad. Like. No, no, just like the way that finances get in the way of higher education and like this kind of, it, it, it really frustrates me. Right. So during this time, she met a man named um, Joe Gold, G-O-U-L-D, mm-hmm. um, who claimed to be working on the longest book ever written called The Oral History of Our Time. However, he would become obsessed slash infatuated with Augusta and write to her constantly. She would say it was, quote unquote, endless letters uh he would also telephone her constantly wanted to marry her and eventually this infatuation kind of turned way more into harassment oh no it was an obsession it seems to from the records that we can find have become violent over time oh and he was may or may not have involved assault oh no no oh that's so this woman's got enough shit to deal with she does not need a Obsession, harassment, bullshit would last for two decades. Oh, my God. Okay, so. Until he died. Actually, he would get arrested and then die. Ah, (laughs) okay. So the the legal ramifications for stalking and this kind of harassment, even today, are severely lacking. You know, there's not a lot of recourse. Um, And then the recourse that's available, like having a... uh, oh God, what is it? A restraining order can, you know, often lead to an escalation. Yeah. I can't imagine this in like the, the mid 1900 or yeah. early 1900s where so, this, this guy can just harass her for literally yep. 20 years. So during these two decades, while he was harassing her, he was actually arrested several times for attacking other women. He was in and oh out of psychiatric God. hospitals where he was eventually diagnosed as a psychopath. Shocker. <laughs> Um, and eventually, um, he would die in a psychiatric hospital after probably having been lobotomized several, several years. (laughs) Like he was supposedly lobotomized or maybe lobotomized in 1949 and he died in 1957. My phone. Oh, that was your phone. That was my phone. Your mic. No, that was my phone dropping because I'm literally like like shitting. I'm shitting bricks right now. Yeah. And when people did like they pro because he was well off um oh fuck that shit so they when they when they did a profile of him in the new yorker they just they said he was a quote-unquote harmless eccentric even though he had been to jail multiple times for attacking women so yeah he got lobotomized and then died but he was like a really good swimmer He's a really good swimmer and I, we don't want to like ruin his life right so despite his BS and all that. Also, Augusta still has a child. <laughs> Irene's still around. She, she's, yeah, she's going through Irene's all this. Getting and she's older a, now, she's though, a mother at this point. Um, so, despite all of that, um, she would go on to win the Otto Kahn Prize in the at, in nineteen twenty eight um, for her submission to the Harmon Foundation. Um, it was called Head of a Negro. And there's actually, if you like, you can Google it. And one of the many, many articles about Augusta actually has like a short video of her like explaining her sculpture. It's really cool. Like, it's not even her explaining. It's just her like working Mm -hmm. on it. It's really interesting. Um, 
And this, this again became like a big thing where she would be very outspoken about how, yeah, there was like this, she called it a fetishization of what she called like Negro primitive that like, yeah, white people were obsessed with, which was that like over characterization of black people in art at this time. And and yeah, making them look animalistic or primitive because that also fed into this grand myth of like, yeah, this is where you'd see a lot of like really skinny portrayals in like a loincloth and it was just it's disgusting yeah um she was actually like public or she publicly critiqued the the Harmon foundation who's the person the the people that gave her the that like she won but she she criticized their director for her low standards of black art and lack of understanding in the area of visual arts she was like the things you're letting in are not okay yeah this is trash. Remove it from my right. sight. So in 1929, Augusta finally got to go to France. <laughs> Fucking finally. At the age of 37. It, okay, um, if I wasn't 100% certain that she is dead by now, I would have been like, we're starting this GoFundMe, right. get Augusta uh, to France. No, that's basically what happened is she pulled resources from her own, the Urban League, the Rosenwald Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation grant, and donations from former teachers friends and mentors so she could finally fucking go to france she crowdfunded her own i love it i love it so she would enroll and attend when she went to france the academy de la grande chaumiere which was a leading paris uh art school because of course all roads lead to paris all roads lead Um, to paris and she was able to settle into an apartment on the montparnasse and work in a studio of an artist named Ben Benetois, I think his first name was Benoit. Benoit Felix Benoit, who was also a professor at the academy. Cool. Um, while the studio was initially really encouraging of her, it wasn't so much that they disregarded her as a black person, but later she would write that quote: "The masters are not in sympathy, as they all have their own definite ideas and styles, and usually wish their pupil to follow their particular methods." So it wasn't so much of like who she was. As this was a time where, like, yeah, when a, a mentor was mentoring you, they wanted you to sculpt an art just like they were. Yep, I just use art as a verb. Yes. No, no, no. I, I think that's that's totally, totally valid. And, yeah, it's, it's hey, no, 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 you're going to do what I do because that's why I'm here. Right. So they basically you can cool. carry on their legacy. You can see yeah. it in a lot. Maybe not, like, a ton of, like, the famous artists, but particularly, yeah, ones that would teach at schools. Mm-hmm. They would be like, oh, this was this person's pupil, and you can see their influence because they would paint almost exactly the same. Yeah. So, basically, she... Was still attending school, but she began primarily working on her own in Paris. Um, She would also study other sculptors of, like, note that were living in Paris at the time, but maybe not teaching. She would exhibit twice, both at the Paris Salon and the Exposition, and win awards both times. Um, She would then go on to tour France, Belgium, and Germany, researching sculptures, particularly in cathedrals and museums. She was kind of getting like an art history tour. She would then go on to return to the United States in the 1931 or 19. Yeah. 1931, which means the great depression. Oh, what a super (laughs) fun time for everyone. No one was miserable. 
Which great, great time for artists too. Oh, that's what I was gonna say. Like the Great Depression, like most things, basically stopped art sales because no one had any money to buy any art. Yeah. Um, but she would push on um, doing other things until in 1934, she would become the first African American artist to be elected to the National Association of Women Painters and Sculptors. Nice. Yeah. So she was doing that thing, and then she would also launch the Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts, which I fucking love. Wait, I'm sorry. That's actually what it's called. The The Savage Savage Studio Studio of Arts Arts and Crafts. Crafts. Yep. Okay. She knew she had a bitchin' last name, and she fucking went for it. And I I love it. This is, I love this more than anything in the world right now. The Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts. Right. Can we make that a t-shirt? Yes. Like, like just a super, it's like. We should probably make sure it's not still open. Okay. I mean. Sue us. Yeah. Yeah. But I just. But if it's not. (laughs) I fucking love that. Um, This was located in Shocker, Harlem, um, and was opened with a grant from the Carnegie Foundation. Nice. So in her studio, she would let anyone, literally anyone, who wanted to come in and learn to paint, draw, or sculpt, not even learn, but, like, just do it. Like, it was, like, an open space where she could teach people or they could just come in and work on projects. And many young students became, or not many, some of the young students became um, nationally known artists, such as Jacob Lawrence, Norman Lewis, and Gwendolyn Knight, which I'm pretty sure we covered Gwendolyn Knight. Gwendolyn Knight. That sounds really familiar. We definitely covered someone named Gwendolyn because, yeah, that name, like, sticks with me. See, I know we covered someone with the last name Knight because she was the one that invented, like, the paper bag. Oh, yeah. And then that. Yeah, but then that, like, folding machine that made sure your grandfather didn't get shanked in the factory. Yeah, because that was (laughs) bullshit. I'm, I'm looking at our list of women. I'm actually looking at Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn Brooks, which was okay. paper bag lady. And then I'm going to look up Gwendolyn Brooks was the paper bag lady. Well, Gwendolyn Brooks is the only Gwendolyn we've covered. Mm, pretty sure the paper bag lady was Knight. It was, Mar- it was Margaret Knight. Yeah, she was Margaret Knight. Yes. We have not covered Gwendolyn Knight. We have not. Now that we have all figured this out together. <laughs> we also I also covered a Catherine Knight. Oh, yeah, we don't want to. No, she is the night we do not speak of. Exactly. Anyways, so famous students. Um, Interesting. Another student that came and like taught under her was sociologist Kenneth B. Clark, whose research was later contributed to Brown v. Board. Oh, shit. Hell yeah. Just a little like sub note in there. I love how all this stuff like feeds into each other. Right. Uh, within a year, Savage became the director for the Harlem Community Arts Center, um, and around 1,500 people would come and con- um, participate in her workshops, learning from a multicultural staff that she hired, um, and show that and their work would show all around New York. However, you gotta love my howevers. I'm I'm getting a little tired of it could use fewer <laughs> um she would receive she would be receiving funds from the works progress administration um but a lot of old struggles of discrimination were revived um between the works progress administration officials who objected to her having a leadership role because of the color of her skin and probably because she was a woman let's be honest Okay. Anyway, she shoved it to them because she would go on to be one of the f- uh, one of four women of only four women and only two African Americans in general to receive a professional commission from the Board of Design to be included in the 1939 New York's World Fair. You know why? 
Because she's a badass? Because she's fucking savage. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, you should so Google um All right, let's her World's Fair sculpture if you can. Okay. So the it's called the harp. Oh, oh, okay. I go I Google image search her before and I think I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, with yep, the it's with like a the, harp made of people. Yes, and the kind hand. of weird looking. Yep. I think that's you know what I okay. I'm gonna talk about it, so we'll get back into it, but go ahead. I was just gonna say my impression of this piece of art is just like how a success is built up and up and up and like every person's success kind of it, it it becomes greater and supports the people that come after them. So even if they don't get to see the fruits of their success, other people benefit from it. And that's what that makes me think of. Yeah. And this so is first off, Kelly I would like to I'm say uh, 44 million people attempted the New York World's Fair were there in 1939. Even, were there even 44 million people Apparently. alive I mean, at the yes. time? <laughs> <laughs> um, but there, so there, there is like a really cool picture of her like working on it. And because when you look at just the picture, you can't tell how big it is. The last one, particularly like the woman with her mouth open, is like bigger than she is. Yeah. So this, this was a huge fucking undertaking. Anyways, so she was commissioned to create a sculpture showcasing the impact of black people on music. That was her commission. Mm -hmm. So she created what she called Lift Every Voice and Sing. It got turned into what was known as the harp, but it was inspired by the song by James Weldon and Rosamond Johnson. It ended up being a 16-foot-tall plaster sculpture that would stand in front, of, in front of the Contemporary Arts Building at the World's Fair, and it was one of the most popular and most photographed works at the fair. I want to be very clear about the scale of this piece because I am, I am at the same time looking at a photo of like the completed piece, but yep. then a photo of her working on it. Oh, is it where she's like standing in the middle of all yes. the, yeah. Yep. And like my brain cannot consolidate the two. My brain cannot come to terms because when you just look at the piece, it looks like it something looks that you put on a table, but then to see the actual scale, I'm like, And what? the one in the picture that looks smaller might actually be smaller because they were selling tiny metal souvenir oh, versions of it. I bet that's what it is. Uh, there were also postcards of the piece that were available for um, purchase. So the work, for those of you who can't see, but you should go Google it, um, was uh, basically a reinterpretation of a musical instrument, kind of a harp, which would features 12 singing African-American youth in graduated heights as its string, with the harp sounding board being an arm and a hand. Holding, like holding, holding them the up. people. Yep. In the front, a kneeling young man is um, offering music in his hands. Uh, so it was only ever a plaster piece because she didn't have enough money to cast it in bronze or to move and store it. So like many other temporary installations in the World's Fair, the piece, the actual piece was destroyed when the World's Fair closed. No. Yeah. Oh my god! So How these photos is like all we have left. Trad. Like I'm so like I read that and I actually like had to like sit there and do some deep breathing because I'm like, that is fucking bullshit. I feel like that's been such a theme throughout this is just getting the funds, yeah. getting the funds, getting the funds, and the fact that you know something as simple as just getting the funds to do this has gotten in the way of like yeah. preserving it's incredible art and supporting an incredible artist. Shit. Oh my god! So really, these photos and like maybe the recreations is all we have. Yeah, left maybe of the this tiny piece. statues, but the the full sixteen foot. 
Unless someone recreated it, the original is gone. Holy shit. Yeah. So after that, she would go on to open two different galleries. The shows were very well attended and well reviewed, but no one bought a lot of the art. So again, funds caused her to close, which is very, very sad. So the last major showing of her art would occur in 1939. So around the time of the World's Fair. And shockingly, she kind of went into a deep depression afterward, due, mainly due to her financial struggles. She would move to a farmhouse um, in Saugerties, New York. So it's like outside the city in 1945. While there, she would establish a lot of close ties with her neighbors and would welcome friends and family from New York to her home quite often. Not mm-hmm. to live with her, but to come and visit. Yeah. Um, and she would... Uh, at this time, she kind of, like, she would still do art, but she also started branching out in other things. She would cultivate, a, like, a big garden and would sell pigeons, chickens, and eggs. Oh, She became, that. like, a little rural farmer. Um, she would also be employed by KB Products, who is, um, like, they're, they're a mushroom grower, at least at the time. I don't know if they're still around. But she would become a laboratory assistant for the ca- company's cancer research facility. Oh, wow. mushrooms and cancer... Like, could maybe help each other. Don't know what came. Or, yeah. (laughs) She would also finally acquire a car, learn to drive, which would uh, enable her to commute to and from the laboratory. And the laboratory director, Herman Naus, would actually encourage her to still continue her art career and provide her with art supplies. Oh, I love that. Because that, I mean, what a a sharp career right. turn you like, know like now she's you're probably working doing it to make money and he's like yeah. no still pursue your passion it's like yeah, which i love like really good yeah so she would continue her art production though it would be much slower and she would often teach um children in summer camps and would sculpt for friends and tourists in the area as well as exploring writing children's stories Aww. her last commissioned work of art was for her boss herman um and was that uh and was of a, a journalist and author named Pultney Bigelow, whose father had been the U.S. Minister of France, just as a side note. Um, and her neighbors would comment that she was always making things with her hands. Oh, just like when she was a kid, just right. like making the things with clay. So not only was the um, work that she did for... Um, the world's fair in plaster but much of her work uh was done in plaster throughout the years just because that's really all she could afford unfortunately mm-hmm. um one of her most famous busts is titled gammon um which is on permanent display at the smithsonian art museum currently and there's also a life-size version of that same statue in the collection of the Cle- cleveland art museum um august Augusta did pass away in March of 1962 in New York, um, survived by her daughter. Because <laughs> remember, she's like a single mother for 90% right? of the story. Um, yeah, so this gammon piece, which was modeled just after a generic like Harlem youth, she never yep. named who it was. Yeah, it's just like a little boy with the newsboy cap and the yeah. collared shirt. It's vote. It was voted one of the most popular exhibitions of over 200 works by black artists. Her style can, is described as realistic, expressive, and sensitive. And through her art and influence within the artist community... Um, she really influenced a lot of artists and kind of like really started a big push for change, particularly of African-American depiction in art. Um, 
And while uh, there's a lot of documentation of her art, the location of much of her artwork is unknown. Well, a lot of it probably didn't survive. Right. If it was was all given to friends or family. Oh, God. So, yeah, that is Augusta. And, yeah, like, you guys should look up definitely the heart. But, like, even her other work was just amazing. Yeah, like like the this this gammon piece. It's very like like when you said sensitive, that's what this piece evokes to me. Yeah. Because the the expression on this boy's face, it says so much. It's it, it's it's just like a really beautifully done piece and it's done in a, you know, realistic, honest and like compassionate right. way. I just no. It's and I'm not an art person. Like I love art, but I don't know how yeah. to judge it. If you if you just Google but it's amazing. Augusta Savage, the first page that comes up is her Smithsonian page. And so mm-hmm. yeah, you can see mainly gammon because that's the big one there but at the top of the page well, there's also one. a picture of her with one of her other um works of art as well that's incredible but yeah well thank you for whining about the savage school of arts and crafts and Which the woman I don't behind think exists that anymore so I, we could probably make the shirts i just i love i love it so much that's amazing yeah and i just she did so much and like God, it makes me so mad that like, like, yeah, most of the stuff is just like gone. So you were, so throughout this story, I thought of a quote that I saw recently to the point where I actually looked it up. Um, so it's a quote by Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, who's a, oh, is he, does he suck? Is it G-O-U-L-D? Yeah. Cause I'm like wondering if he's related to the Joe guy that, that was that, her, that's her not a, okay no that's not okay. an uncommon last I name. was like mm. <laughs> yeah no, that's it's, why I made that noise no it's fine it's it's not um I mean hey who knows but it is a common last name but he's he's a paleontologist who as far as I know does not have a history of okay, harassing good. women for 20 years but he, he's got this quote quote I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. And that's what this makes me think of. Yeah. Because there was there was so much time, there were so many opportunities, there was so much that was denied to Augusta. And it wasn't because she wasn't good enough. It wasn't because she wasn't skilled. It was because she was a black woman. And because of money and like, but just that idea, like we're so obsessed over the physicality of Einstein's brain. And it's like, do you know how many other people could have been Einstein, but the circumstances in their life simply did not allow it. And we just, we don't even have a lot of the surviving pieces from this woman. Right. Because of that. I did meant, I forgot to mention that she actually died living with her daughter, Irene. So she was survived by Irene. She died of cancer. Because remember she has a daughter. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, Also that, I mentioned that home where she had in Saugerties, New York, where she had like the farm and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, That is actually on the National Register Historic of Historic Places as her house and studio. It is the most significant surviving site associated with her life. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is has been restored to evoke the period where she lived there. So you can like go and see the house that she lived in before she got too sick to live on yeah. her own. Oh, that's so if we amazing. ever go to New York, I'm like, we might need to take like a detour to wherever Saugerty is and go there. 100%. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that because she definitely deserves a lot more credit and attention. Yes. 
I know I like found her and I was like, ooh, this is someone we haven't covered and she sounds super interesting. Okay, and I'm here's the thing. I'm not saying that like we're running out of people because obviously we never will. It's but finding them. To to find the ones that we haven't covered because obviously, you know, when, when we're searching, especially in a certain demographic, it's the same results that come up on the first page. It's like, we've covered all these women already. We got to dig deeper and deeper now. And actually that's been really exciting for me because yeah. it's like, Ooh, I can't just pick a woman. I know we haven't covered her because we've been doing this for 10 episodes. It's like, we're on, we're coming up on 200 episodes and we've covered a lot of women. We've covered over almost over 400 women. Like, by the time we hit episode 200, we've covered over 400 women. Oh, easily, because, like, you've covered you've covered multiple in episodes. I've yeah. covered in multiple in episodes. Like, but but that idea blows my mind, and it's it's like, oh, we're getting to the point where we can't just rely on, like, the list goes, like, 10 black women you've never heard of. I'm like, try me. Right. Fucking try me. <laughs> but, yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So, Kelly, my darling, my dearest. What am I thankful for? What are you thankful? Well, since you brought it up, I wasn't going to pry. I mean, you were. I you, mean. You will. No, I would never. I call uh, bullshit. <laughs> Just so you know. But while we're on the topic, what are you thankful for? Um, that's a great question. What am I thankful for? Um, hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to keep making noise until I think of something. Would you like me to go first? Because I do. Sure. Have if something. you have something right off okay. the top of uh, your mind, go for it. Yes. The top of my mind. Shut up. Um, so I am thankful for a combination of Walgreens, Spite, and a sheer force of will, because I recently got back from Colorado, and unfortunately, the first night I was there, I spent throwing up everything I had eaten in the past, like, 24 hours. I I had, like, a really bad sinus headache, and the altitude, I think, like, was a double whammy and kicked my ass. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sharing a hotel room with two other people, and the bathroom doesn't even have, like, a privacy fan, so I'm like, so, so then I have like you're just vomiting, and so you're I like, have this the, is attractive. So I have the extra shame of like, and everyone who's trying to sleep can just hear me puking my guts out. And all the pharmacies were closed, so I wasn't able to get like you know sinus meds or anything. And I I was I was starting to come with to terms like, oh my god, I might just have to like sleep in the car the whole time because we because we stayed in one place and then we were driving like two hours away to another place so I couldn't just like hide out in the hotel room for the rest of the trip which also would have sucked right so the the people I was traveling with they were incredibly kind and compassionate and caring and we hit up a Walgreens I got some sinus meds how many of there were you three like 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 in our specific travel group but then we also met up with with people um but like, I'm just very thankful to them for being so accommodating. Because once I got the meds, like I started to feel better. I went hiking and yeah, like got to enjoy the scenery. And really, what was fueling me were the meds and spite. Because the last time I went to Denver, I just did downtown, spite. which I was which downtown Denver was great. But I knew the next time I went, I wanted to do the nature stuff. But also, my last trip was very stressful. There was a lot of like emotional. Uh, What's the 
turmoil? No, when you're like doing, oh, emotional labor. There you go. I was doing a lot of emotional labor for the person I was traveling with. And so I was like, I didn't come all the way back here to not fucking do this. So help me God. I just love that. I think I even Snapchat you. I'm like, you I'm, I'm running on, I'm running on, you know, a leave sinus and cold and spite. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and natural beauty. And it turned it was out to great. it turned out to be a great trip. It was a lot of fun, lots of hiking, lots of nature, lots of like, ooh, on. So yes, I'm I'm thankful that it was just one night. Like even the next morning I threw up. It was just bile. I'm like, are you kidding me? Because you know, sometimes you get sick, you get it out of your system and then you're fine. This was not the case. I'm like, are you gotta be shitting me? I was so angry. And that powered me, that fueled me. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm I'm thankful. I'm thankful for a great trip that was not ruined by my horrible vomiting. I I'm glad. I'm yes. really, really glad. <laughs> so Kelly, have you had an opportunity to think of what you're thankful for? Nope. Perhaps, I mean, like, perhaps the fact you haven't thrown up this week. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't thrown up this week. And I am sucks. very grateful for that because I hate throwing up. Someone else said that to me. They're like, I hate throwing up. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's pretty standard. Yeah. That, ooh, like, hot takes. Hot take. <laughs> the worst part about throwing up is that your body does not want to. No. It's that your body fights it. And it's like, if I could just get all of this out right now, my life would be a lot easier. But I have to fight with my body. I mean, I am thankful I didn't throw up this week. But I feel like I should have more than that. Like, that's I just haven't okay. been doing anything because I'm trying to write a stupid paper and finish school. And I guess I'm thankful for all the privileges I know I have in my life because I'm like getting to do my master's and like being able to, I mean, maybe not afford, but, you know, having the time to do it and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm thankful for. And not throwing up this week. Thankful for a lack of vomiting and also the ability to bitch about getting your masters and all the work that entails. I love that. I'm here for it. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHPod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where you can find basically everything. You can find little bios about us. You can find our merch. You don't even have to go to another website. It's just on our website. I actually think I need to add a picture of my cat to our website because he he's not featured. And he actually, this morning, um, he jumped on my face. I don't know if you can see the scratches on the bridge of my nose. Uh, and I, I like, yeah, one. Yeah, I think it's because he's mad he's not featured on our website. Probably. He's featured on our social media. He's very photogenic, but he's like, that's not good enough. He's like, bitch, please. <laughs> um, you send me a picture and I will put him on there. Um, Which one to choose? But it also has our, like I said, our merch, a link to our Patreon, a link to everywhere you can listen. But back to our Patreon, you should donate for as little as $1 to get some extra content that we probably need more of, but we'll get there. We're getting there. Yeah. This well, is what you. happens when you're in school and yeah. are also trying to run a podcast and work and everything else. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Uh, I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.